0: I'm Nia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street.
1: I was walking down the street My girl, I said to me Hey, see last name You knew you hadn't treated me right Been all day long, keep you doing that song Always on my, my, my mind. do makes me feel so ba, 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 fine, fine, fine.
0: to skeet Blues by Blind Blake, a famous American blues and ragtime singer and guitarist who was popular in the first several decades of the 20th century. He's remembered as a pioneer of an important form of traditional blues music in North Carolina known as the Piedmont Blues. This song is courtesy of the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. In the Carolinas during the first decade of the 20th century, African-American musicians developed a style of music known as the Piedmont Blues. Geographically, the Piedmont is the area that lies between the Atlantic Ocean and Appalachian Mountains in North Carolina. Musically, however, the blues has deep roots in the warm soil of the South where tobacco grows. It is said that the blues writer Bruce Bastion coined the phrase Piedmont Blues to describe music that stretches from the Appalachian foothills to the Atlantic and from Virginia down through the Carolinas and Georgia to Florida. The Piedmont blues is characterized by a bouncy fingerprint guitar style. Vocals often talk about the triumphs and trials of everyday life, including work, love, and heartbreak. In the 1930s and 40s, Rural African-Americans flocked to Durham, North Carolina, where the booming tobacco industry was one of the most important components of the city's economy and impacted almost every aspect of society there. Durham became a center of blues culture, with sorrowful melodies blaring out of private parties and local clubs in Durham, as well as the Piedmont during this time. This season... You'll hear various music featured on these podcast episodes that pay homage to the musicians of the late 19th and early 20th century that had a huge influence in North Carolina culture, including Blind Blake, Bessie Smith, as well as other musicians. You will also hear music and recordings from the digital archives of the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. In its massive storehouse of archives, the center houses thousands of recordings made by Alan Lomax, an ethnomusicologist born in Austin, Texas in 1915. Alan Lomax spent over 60 years promoting knowledge and appreciation of folk music. He began his career in 1933 alongside his father, pioneering folklorist John Avery Lomax. As a teenager, Alan traveled with his father to prisons, lumber camps, and Black communities across the South. In 1934, the two launched an effort to expand the archives of recorded folk music at the Archive of the American Folk Song at the Library of Congress. After John Lomax's death on January 26, 1948, Allen continued to record, film, and study folk music throughout the South and around the world. Lomax gathered thousands of field recordings of folk musicians throughout the South, Southwest, Midwest, Northeast, Haiti, as well as the Bahamas. This next recording was done at a prison in Boone, North Carolina, in 1936. And again, it's courtesy of the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress.
1: (laughs) ¶¶¶¶ Yes i well can't sit down, I so, oh, good Hail, Hail, down can't sit down, sit down, sad, 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 got I you far, trying get down. I'm a little, 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 I'm i i I want to throw, 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 that throw, 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 throw,
0: Season, we're going to take a deep dive into Wilmington, North Carolina, and Durham, North Carolina, during the late 19th century and early 20th century by juxtaposing the two communities while also highlighting their interconnectedness. At its height, Black Durham was considered the capital of the Black middle class in America, a reputation that earned it the moniker Black Wall Street, similar to Tulsa's Black Greenwood District. As I've mentioned previously on this podcast, Greenwood was not the only so-called Black Wall Street during this period in U.S. history. Still, several decades before Black Durham peaked, Wilmington, North Carolina, was a beacon of hope for Black North Carolinians as well. That is, until the 1898 Wilmington insurrection and coup d'etat that resulted in the slaughter of dozens of Blacks by white mobs before the duly elected biracial government of Wilmington was overthrown by white supremacists. Some experts argue that this was the only proven successful coup d'etat carried out on American soil in U.S. history. However, this season, you're going to hear from Dr. William Darity of Duke University, who presents evidence showing that there may have been a blueprint for the Wilmington insurrection in the form of previous coup d'etats that took place in other communities in the South prior to the overthrow of Wilmington's local government. This season, you'll also hear from experts and scholars who believe that the 1898 white supremacy campaign and Wilmington Coup d'etat was a dry run for the 1900 white supremacy campaign that effectively caused Blacks to lose the vote in North Carolina until the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965. These experts also believe that North Carolina's 1900 white supremacy campaign served as a model and essentially a green light for other states across the South, to take similar actions to disenfranchise Blacks. This history is not only about a bloody insurrection in North Carolina at the end of the 19th century. It's also about the origins of a larger methodical strategy by white supremacists to reverse almost every gain Blacks have made since Reconstruction. Most importantly, the right to vote and hold office. Wilmington and Durham are two very different but equally fascinating places to me, which help illuminate the complex Black experience in North Carolina during the nadir of American race relations, when racial tensions in the United States were considered to be at their worst. Still, a specific set of circumstances caused Wilmington and Durham to peak at different times, just a few decades apart from one another, and to take two very different trajectories— some of this season's experts on Wilmington and Durham's history will explain how the latter's trajectory was very much dictated by the fate of the former's demise, which served as a cautionary tale in the Jim Crow South. Black Durham lived and thrived in the shadow of Black Wilmington's downfall. Juxtaposing Wilmington and Durham also puts in perspective how different the Black experience in North Carolina was before and after the white supremacy campaigns of 1898, which again led to the overthrow of Wilmington's local biracial government and the white supremacy campaign of 1900 that effectively eliminated the right to vote for Black men in the state. For example, prior to the 1898 Wilmington insurrection, similar to many states across the South following the ratification of the 13th Amendment, which abolished Slavery, North Carolina passed Black codes that restricted Black progress in various areas, including the work they could perform and the wages they could earn. But the application of these laws were largely under the discretion of those charged with crafting and later enforcing them. As a result, Blacks in some regions of North Carolina enjoyed more political access or participation, which could result in upward mobility, economic progress and social influence than Blacks in other parts of the state. This could be seen in the condition of some bustling Black enclaves, in addition to Wilmington and Durham, communities such as Greensboro, Asheville, Charlotte, and Raleigh, which will also be a part of our discussion surrounding Wilmington and Durham this season due to the interconnectedness of the Black experience in North Carolina at this time. However, after the 1898 white supremacy campaign and turn-of-the-century 1900 white supremacy campaign, North Carolina witnessed a stark decrease in Black political participation. In his book, Jim Crow in North Carolina, The Legislative Program from 1865 to 1920, attorney and author Richard Pascal argues that the law reflects the times in which they are crafted and the people who craft them. He also argues that the racial contagion that swept through North Carolina during the white supremacy campaigns of 1898 and 1900 caused the pendulum of white attitudes regarding race to swing much farther towards adherence to white supremacist doctrines, so much so that the application of the law saw a dramatic shift as well. As a result, Pascal writes, quote, The 1900 Amendment of the North Carolina Constitution requiring that potential voters be able to read and write any section of the Constitution in the English language was race neutral on its face, but its application by the registrars was anything but race neutral, end quote. What changed the way the registrars acted with regards to the law? the hyperbolic racist propaganda used by white supremacists to turn the political tides in Democrats' favor at the end of the 19th century. Pascal writes, quote, thus constitutional amendments and legislative statutes, which did not openly discriminate on their face, that is, in the actual wording, were applied in a discriminatory fashion to sustain and expand the system of Jim Crow in North Carolina, end quote. Pascal also argues that the white supremacist campaigns of 1898 and 1900 were the real turning point for de jure Jim Crow in North Carolina, or Jim Crow codified in law, because racial animus turned so harshly against North Carolina's Blacks and minorities following both campaigns. Quote, African Americans' access to the voting booth effectively vanished in an instant, end quote, after North Carolina's suffrage amendment was passed in 1900. Without the franchise, from 1900 onwards, Black communities in North Carolina were forced to develop new strategies to survive, and in some cases, even thrive. Durham, North Carolina managed to do this with a good deal of success. Durham's Black elite business leaders and middle class earned its praise from national Black leaders, such as W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. Paris Street in Durham, at the time, a hub of Black enterprise that spanned four blocks, helped fuel growth in Durham's Black enclaves, such as the historic Hayti community. Additionally, while most African Americans in Durham were working class or poor—this was the Jim Crow South, after all—living conditions in Durham were considered among the best the South had to offer for Blacks. While Du Bois attributed most of Durham's success to its tolerant white elite and seeming racial harmony— Behind the scenes, however, there was a strict code of racial conduct that helped manage the city's race relations, a social contract stipulating that blacks and whites could live side by side with relative civility, and African-Americans could even enjoy some forms of progress if they respected the boundaries of segregation and white supremacy. Durham's success gave the impression that a massacre such as the one in Wilmington could never happen in Durham. That was not the case and Durham's Black patriarchs knew this. The possibility of a massacre like the Wilmington insurrection was reason enough for them to make sure the city's Black community followed the playbook for racial civility that Durham's white elite had established. Durham's economic growth was in large part attributable to the growth of the tobacco and textile industries, Black women, often overlooked in this historical context, made up a large portion of the workers in tobacco and textile factories, and thus were also responsible for much of the full city's economic growth. Likewise, Black women made up a majority of administrative employees on Black Wall Street and in Durham's Black businesses, and were an integral part of the Black community's economic growth. But Black women were not just valuable contributors to their household incomes. After Black men lost the boat, women in North Carolina's African-American enclaves had to step in as de facto liaisons between their families, communities, and white women whom they would have to work with to help secure resources for their communities. You'll hear from Duke University's Dr. Glinda Elizabeth Gilmore, who will expound more upon this history. As we explore the complicated, at times painful, and at other times inspirational history, Of Wilmington and Durham. I hope you understand that the sum of this history is not just a tragedy, though tragedy is very much a part of it. I also hope, if you have not done so already, you begin to think of progress as a phenomenon that can occur over longer arcs of time in history. And by using lessons from our history, we can map out better blueprints for our future, or at the very least, stop the darker parts of our history from occurring again as they almost did in January of 2021. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform.
1: que ga ga ga